the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing today's program. And today, of course, is Income Redistribution Day, also known as Tax Day. You have until midnight tonight to get all the paperwork where it needs to be. It has to be postmarked by midnight, so you know what to do. Well, today we're going to talk with Michelle DeRusha. She's the author of Katarina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. It's kind of an interesting look at uh, the better half, if you will, of uh, Martin Luther and the impact marriage made on him. Now, he was a confirmed bachelor and uh, told everyone who would listen that he never intended to marry, but that marriage had an impact on his life and his ministry as well as his theology. We'll talk more about that when she joins us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. What's next in North Korea? Are we back from the brink or are we um, moving inexorably towards some sort of violent conflict? Should the United States continue to project strength in the region and defend our allies? allies' interests, even if it means increasing tensions and risks of greater conflict. We'll discuss all of that with Peter Brooks in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, Incrum Redistribution Day has arrived. It's a day reminding all of us that um, too much of our hard-earned money is collected by the behemoth government known as known rather for its fiscal carelessness and irresponsibility. Now, we're told that we're to pay Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but in the form of government we find ourselves in, where accountability is a part of our responsibility as uh, citizens, we need to be wary of what government does with what it collects. Just take a look at the ever-ballooning national debt. And yet, here we are again, feeding the beast whose appetite seems to know no limits. Well, it is ironic that one of the biggest sparks igniting the fires of the American Revolution was the contentious subject of taxation. And I suppose that hasn't changed much. While most celebrate the spirit of those Bostonians who famously protested the British Crown's Tea Act of 1773, many Americans today seem content to merely utter a few grumblings over our tax burden. And this is done while also wondering if uh, everyone else has paid their fair share, as the phrase has come to be known, rather than challenging challenging the government's plunder for the express purpose of wealth redistribution. In fact, the question of taxes has historically been one of the largest distinctions between the two major political parties. The Democrats believe government is uh, entitled to as much of your money as it can gather for the purpose of redistributing it and balancing things out. Republicans continuously work at varying degrees at tax reduction, so one of the major issues that divides the major parties. Well, taxes are not merely a means of paying for the government's uh, many obligations and programs. Um, they are means of control as well, which is one one of the reasons that the uh, the founders of the republic uh, was so um, 
vehemently opposed to a large uh, government. Uh, some see it today as a sort of punishment on the wealthy and successful for the crime of being wealthy and successful with a presumption that it's always in every circumstance gained by some nefarious means and at uh, the advantage of and the exploitation of others. And therefore, they should suffer by being forced to contribute more to uh, all of the government, um, which is a, a distorted view. That's not true of every person who is wealthy and successful. Some of it is based on being frugal, some uh, skill, education, applying oneself. There are a variety of reasons. Well, what we need to do is, uh, what we need to have, rather, is a simple tax system that fairly extracts taxes without showing favoritism or deference to class distinctions and constitutional restraints on the spending of that revenue. Anything less creates opportunity for those in government to exploit something they have come to do quite well. Jeff Jacoby in a recent column said this, some people claim they file their tax returns cheerfully. They approvingly quote Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s dictum, the taxes are what we pay for civilized society. I quote instead at eminent commentator Dave Barry, who's also, of course, a comic. It's income tax time again. Americans time to gather up those receipts, get out those tax forms, sharpen up the pencils and stab yourself in the aorta. Well, our tax code's lack of clarity and the flood of special interest giveaways and preferences that make it so cumbersome has turned innumerable taxpayers into cynics and sometimes even cheats. Americans conclude that the whole setup is rigged and that only a sucker doesn't bend the rules in order to pay less or finagle a a bigger refund. And that is achieved by a a variety of means. In such an environment, it isn't only... um, Compliance rates that suffer, some of the civic virtue so important to a healthy society is lost as well. Jimmy Carter was right in 1976 when he called the U.S. income taxes a disgrace to the human race. Well, 36 years later, it's more disgraceful and maddening than ever, but we pay our taxes because it's the right thing to do. But what should happen next? Well, in the coming weeks, Congress and the White House are going to begin to cement plans for fundamental tax reform. I'm 60 years old this 2017, and I've heard the phrase fundamental tax reform more times than I care to remember and will probably soon forget. For individuals and corporations, that's what they're going to strive for again. Well, the economic benefits of a leaner and more efficient tax code are obvious, but there are tremendous regulatory savings available as well. Well, based on American Action Forum, which is a research firm, the IRS currently imposes 8.1 billion hours of paperwork and generates more than a thousand tax forms. To put these incredible burdens into perspective, that is 25 hours per person in the United States or 54 hours per taxpayer. In other words, the average working American spends more than a week sifting through paperwork and preparing to file. And that's given that uh, some 35 percent of Americans don't pay any taxes at all. Now, what's the cost of all of this? Well, according to the IRS, it's eighty six billion dollars annually. We're not talking about the taxes that are paid. We're talking about what it uh, takes in order to file the tax uh, returns that are required. Eighty six billion dollars annually. But the agency only monetizes a small fraction fraction of its more than 700 distinct paperwork collections. So this is a um, a conservative understatement. Now, when assuming every hour of paperwork imposes some cost, the actual burden jumps to around $170 billion annually. 
Wow. We're talking about the uh, the hours of paperwork imposed by the IRS to satisfy what Congress says they must collect every year. That exceeds the gross domestic product of Kenya. Now, given this evidence, there are plenty of reasons to support fundamental tax reform. There's that phrase that I've heard since childhood, fundamental tax reforms. Oh, and by the way, there are 1,054 tax forms available to be filed. Uh, again, some perspective. Business uh, spends about 2.9 billion hours uh, of filing tax returns. Individuals, 2.6 billion hours. That's obviously all of us together. Um, some of the, the most burdensome IRS paperwork requirements, uh, there's the depreciation and amortization uh, forms. That's 448 million hours. There's the employer's quarterly tax return, 388 million hours. I did that for my father. He did a, had a business for a period of time, and I did the quarterly employer tax returns. 388 million hours seems like an understatement, given my experience at trying to do it. Return for estates and trusts, 307 million hours. Employers' federal unemployment tax returns, 105 million hours. And then there's sales of business property, 100 million hours. That's the time it takes uh, for all of us together to fill, to fill out those forms, or at least those who have to file them. Now, those represent the largest cumulative totals, but they don't reveal the collections that impose the highest number of hours per response. So even those are an understatement. Uh, one other thing, for many Americans, their most direct exposure to the regulatory state is through forms. There are more than 20,000 federal forms, and whether it's sitting in a doctor's office or preparing for tax return forms, uh, forms are ubiquitous. For the IRS, there are 1,054 uh, four more than there were last year. These are the forms, the time that it takes for us to satisfy Uncle Sam's requirement, or in, uh, in my case, um, uh, Great Grandpa Rice, the character uh, after which the, the uh, Uncle Sam was uh, fashioned. Anyway, today's tax day. We're just putting a little perspective on it all. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Today is tax day. They are due midnight tonight. File an extension if you're not ready, but you need to send the money in as well if you can. Uh, portions of today's program are brought to you by Toyota of Vancouver, and we're anticipating a conversation with Michelle DeRusha. She's the author of Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a renegade monk later this hour. We're talking about taxes on this tax day. When we file our taxes, it's natural to wonder, where do my tax dollars actually go, and what do they fund, and what don't they fund? Well, according to the latest Congressional Budget Office report on the distribution of federal taxes, Washington collects about $20,000 from the average household. In 2016, the deficit was a whopping $587 billion, to put it in a little perspective. The almost $3.3 trillion in money that the federal government taxes out of the economy each year isn't enough to satiate its profligate spending. And where do our tax dollars go? So, well, some believe uh, most of it goes to welfare and foreign aid. Others believe defense and corporate welfare dominate the budget. In reality, health entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, and Social Security are the largest programs. Now, these entitlements and interest on the debt are set to consume every single dollar of taxes paid in just over 20 years, unless there is fundamental tax reform or 
uh, cut in spending. Well, let's look at these uh, areas that take up much of or most of our tax dollars. Social Security at the top, the single largest federal program. Social Security accounts for roughly a quarter of all federal spending. Its trust funds are already paying out more than they take in. And as more people retire, which I hope to do someday, the system will be under continued stress. Without reform, the program's trustees project benefits will need to be cut by as much as 21 percent if nothing is done by 2034. I did the math. I'll be 78 in 2034 if the Lord wills and I live. Major health entitlements are also uh, top of the list. Uh, Federal health programs like Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare subsidies are also growing at an unsustainable trajectory, currently consuming 28 percent of the budget. Health spending continues to grow faster than the economy. Income uh, security is another one of those areas, your tax dollars uh, finance. Other income security programs like veterans benefits, unemployment compensation, food and housing assistance, federal employee retirement and disability are 18 percent of the budget, surprising uh, national or rather surpassing national defense uh, spending, which is next on that list. The defense budget covers everything from military paychecks to operations overseas to the research, development, and acquisition of new technologies and equipment. Uh, at about 16% of the federal budget, defense spending is the last major category of federal spending and has been falling as a percentage of the budget for the last decade. And the rest? Well, interest. Over the coming decade, U.S. debt held by the public is projected to balloon to 89% of gross domestic product. That's driven primarily by health and Social Security spending. Deficit spending does not come cheap. As the debt increases, so does the cost of the interest that we have to pay to those who hold that debt. Uh, the unfortunate result of excessive government spending, which is why so many are harping on we've got to cut government spending. Currently, 6% of the budget uh, is spent on interest, money that takes away from other priorities. Over the next 10 years, net interest on the debt is projected to rise to almost 12% of the budget, more than is projected uh, to be spent on national defense. So we'll be paying more on interest than our own nation's defense. Now, without reforming America's massive and growing federal programs, Washington will have to continue to borrow increasing amounts of money, piling debt onto younger generations, putting the nation on an unsustainable economic course. Now, growing government spending threatens higher taxes on current and future taxpayers, you know, your children and grandchildren, and increasing taxes is not an option. Washington already takes too much of the money that Americans work hard to earn. Congress has to rethink how they're going to spend the people's money. The tax code is also badly in need of an update to make it less of a burden on the American people. We talked a little bit about about that already. American business and the economy also need some relief. Pro-growth tax reforms can unleash private investment, encourage job creation, fuel economic growth, and increase prop- prosperity for all Americans, which is what I think all of us want. The first step to putting the federal budget back on a sustainable path is fully accounting for how precious taxpayer dollars are being used. Are you getting your money's worth? And that's a big question that's asked every year. And we don't uh, always get a very satisfying answer. Well, there are taxes that we pay that uh, aren't accounted for in this season of filing one's taxes. Uh, We won't go into all of them, but one area of taxation is um, property taxes. Uh, And one study compared the average property taxes for all 50 states and Washington, D.C. American homeowners uh, paid property taxes totaling nearly $278 billion in 2016, according to a new report filed by ATTOM Data Solutions. They are the nation's largest property database. 
Well, that means that each of the country's 84 million single-family homeowners paid an average of 3296 in property taxes, which amounts to an average of 1.15% effective tax rate. Now, that varies. That, of course, is the average. A lot of people paid a lot more. A lot of people paid a lot less. And these are only homeowners we're referring to. Well, according to the report, there were nine counties in the country with a population of at least 100,000 that had average annual property taxes of more than $10,000. Wow. Westchester, uh, Rockland and Nassau counties in New York, Essex, Bergen Union and Morris counties in New Jersey, Marin County, California and Fairfield County, Connecticut. And of the 586 total counties, there were 32 with average annual property taxes of $7,000 or more, including some in Illinois, Texas, Virginia, and Massachusetts. Well, how does Oregon and Washington uh, rank uh, uh, based on the effective tax rate? Well, to give you some perspective, beginning with the lowest uh, property tax rate to the highest, Hawaii is the lowest um, uh, property tax rate. Uh, Alabama follows, then Colorado. Let's see, I'm flipping through many of these. Um, Let's see, we're... Paying more than Arizona, more than California, North Carolina. Washington ranks at 30. The effective tax rate is 0.88%. The average property tax there is $3,592. Again, some pay a lot more, some pay a lot less. And the highest average metro property tax is in Seattle at $4,767. That's on average. Now, let's see Oklahoma, Indiana, New Mexico, Virginia, Alaska. Here's Oregon at 24. We're just about in the middle in terms of property taxes. Our effective tax rate here in Oregon is 1.02%. The average home value is about $342,488. And the average property tax, $3,495. Some pay more, some pay less, depending on the average home value. The highest... um, uh, average metro property tax is 4146 That's an average on the high end. So Oregon is just about in the middle uh, in terms of the property taxes we pay, and Washington a little lower than that. Well, Americans will have to work until the 23rd of April, that's 113 days into the year, to pay for all the federal, state, and local taxes government will take in 2017. That's not just the federal and state, but local taxes take into account as well, according to the Tax Foundation, that declares a Tax Freedom Day every year. It's what the nonprofit group calls Tax Freedom Day, when Americans have worked enough to cover all the nation's taxes for the year. In 2017, Americans will pay $3.5 trillion in federal taxes and $1.6 trillion in state and local taxes. I would suggest that's probably an underestimation because not all local taxes or um, taxes that are passed on to consumers is reflected there. That's a total bill of more than $5.1 trillion or 31% of the nation's income, according to the Tax Foundation. That $5.1 trillion plus in taxes is more than what Americans will spend in total on food, clothing, and housing combined. Well, total tax burdens per resident vary from state to state. Some states already have paid off their uh, total tax burden, so Tax Freedom Day has come earlier for them, while others uh, won't um, uh, be finished until May the 21st. By the way, that's Connecticut. That's when their Tax Freedom Day will come. The top 10 states with the earliest Tax Freedom Day, Mississippi, April the 5th, Tennessee the 7th, South Dakota, April the 8th, New Mexico the 9th, 
as well as uh, Alabama. The 10th, Alaska and Louisiana. And on the 11th, Tax Freedom Day will come to South Carolina, Kentucky and Oklahoma. For Oregon, that won't come until April the 21st. And for Washington, Tax Freedom Day will be April the 25th. One thing we all share in common is Tax Freedom Day comes in April. We've had to work at least uh, 113 days into the year to pay for all the federal, state, and local taxes government will take in 2017. A little more for some, a little less for others. But Tax Freedom Day for the nation, April 23rd. For Oregon, April 21st. And Washington, April 25th. Well, up next, we're going to talk with Michelle DeRusha. She's the author of Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. We know a lot more about Martin Luther, but what about his wife, the woman who married the reluctant bachelor who was herself at one time a nun? More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Well, at the age of 24, Katerina von Bora escaped the convent where she'd lived since she was 10. As an unmarried woman approaching middle-aged in a time when women had limited ways to support themselves, her future looked pretty bleak. Yet an unconventional marriage gave her a chance, and her life and legacy is now unveiled in Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriages of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk, by my guest, Michelle de Russia. Despite uh, his belief that the Catholic Church overesteemed celibacy and undercut the holiness of marriage, Martin Luther had once declared he would never get married, making the couple's wedding a near <laughs> subversive act. With rich insight into the customs and daily rituals of life in the 1500s, de Russia paints a fascinating picture of one of the most influential couples in Christian history. Well, Michelle DeRussia is the author of 50 Women Every Christian Should Know. She publishes a monthly column on religion and spirituality for the Lincoln Journal Star and writes about faith in the everyday, uh, in the everyday rather, on her blog, uh, michellederussia.com. She lives with her husband and their two boys in Lincoln, Nebraska, and joins us today to talk about uh, Katharina and Martin Luther. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting subject. I mean, we know um, something about his wife, that she had been a nun and that they married late. But most of us know very little about her and certainly about the marriage and the impact that it had on his contribution to uh, as a reformer. What compelled you to take on this subject from this approach? Well, I actually wrote a little bit about Katerina in my earlier book, 50 Women, Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in her, and my curiosity was piqued at that point. I had just a a few pages about her, but it was enough where I was very curious about how she uh, and Martin Luther lived together and what their life was like as husband and wife and as parents. And, you know, I think we know a little bit more about Martin Luther, the theologian and the reformer, but not quite as much about who he was just as a regular person and a husband and a man and a father. And so I was really interested in going behind the scenes in their lives together. You write that the Protestant Reformation would have happened without the marriage of Luther and Katerina, but Luther would not have become or would not have been the same reformer without her. Uh, she was instrumental in uh, helping Luther live out his theology. Yeah, for sure she was. And, you know, it's really interesting Martin Luther, of course, was very traditional and in line with the time regarding roles, male and female, and husband and wife. 
And yet, in real life, in their marriage, he was remarkably equitable and really valued Katerina as a confidant. You can see in his letters to her, he talked very openly about the politics of the time, about theology, and so he clearly valued her intelligence, and she was very much a part of his everyday life, even around the table. You know, when Martin Luther was having theologians and reformers and students visiting his house pretty much every day, and Katerina really wasn't in the background as much as really a participant at the table, which I found really fascinating, especially for that time period. Yeah, yeah. You have to put it in the context and the time in which they lived. Well, let's start uh, in the uh, with the early life of Katerina. Uh, I mentioned that she was in a, uh, a convent when she was 10. Talk a little bit about her early life and how she became a nun. Yeah, she had a, a really tough early life, actually. Her mom died when she was five years old, and when her father remarried, he put Katerina in a convent school, which was actually very common at the time, especially for families of noble lineage, because it was cheaper to pay the cloister, the convent entrance fee, than it was to pay a dowry for your daughter's marriage. And so the Von Boers were struggling financially at the time, and so Katerina's father made the decision to send her to the convent. And she lived in a cloistered convent for 18 years, meaning she really had very little contact with the outside world. She didn't, as far as we know, ever see her family again. So you can imagine what a solitary and really, in, at least in the beginning, probably a frightening experience that must have been. Mm-hmm. And was it just a natural progression that she would become a nun because that's where uh, she had spent her youth? Absolutely. So especially during the Middle Ages and early modern times, women really only had two choices to get married or to become a nun. And so because she had been placed in the convent school and then sort of graduated, so to speak, into the cloister, and she took her vows and she became a nun, yeah, that was absolutely the expectation that she would stay there for the rest of her life. But she didn't stay there for the rest of her life. What what led her to walk away from uh, the commitment to serve as a nun, which was, I suppose, the natural progression to knowing nothing else, to walk away from that into the great unknown. Right. Well, it was an extraordinarily risky move. And what happened was Katerina and some of her fellow sisters started to read some of Martin Luther's writings. His writings were smuggled into cloistered convents and monasteries all around Germany and beyond. And he was writing about the monastic life. And Luther had come to realize that the monastic life was sort of a works-based faith versus a grace-based faith. And so he took issue with that. He also took issue with the Roman Catholic Church's theology at the time, in which they really placed clerics and monastics sort of in a higher level than married regular ordinary folks. And Martin Luther said, no, that's not right. There, there's not this hierarchy of holiness. And so Katerina and, and some of her fellow nuns started reading some of this really revolutionary writing, and it provoked them to escape, to flee from the convent, which they did in the middle of the night. So this was not just a decision made on her part and some of her associates to uh, escape and see the world. This was a theological decision that that 
um, really went to the core uh, understanding of what the gospel meant. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. She just wasn't, you know, tired of being a nun. She really felt convicted that Martin Luther was on to something with his theology of grace versus works-based faith, and she looked at the life that she was leading as a nun and the the vows that she had taken, and she thought to herself, that does seem like works-based faith, And, and she was convicted by that. Now, for a woman in the 1500s, she didn't just leave the convent to find herself a job somewhere, uh, rent an apartment, and and go on with her life. This would have been a very difficult decision that that meant uh, there was a great unknown ahead of her. What did she and her associates decide to do once they, in the dead of night, left the convent? Well, one of Martin Luther's friends helped them escape. So he arrived at the convent with a fish wagon, actually, and smuggled them away into the night brought them to Wittenberg, which is where Martin Luther lived, in an abandoned monastery. And so these nuns basically showed up on Martin Luther's doorstep. And like you said, they were destitute. Uh, Women did not have any rights at that time. They were literally not even considered citizens um, unless they were married. And so these women were entirely dependent on other people to help them. And so Martin Luther ends up being sort of a matchmaker and setting some of these women up with various suitors and marrying them off. Well, Martin Luther was opposed to the idea of getting married for a very long time. What changed his mind? Was it just simply the practicality of trying to help support these women whose theology now had had been changed by this revolution that was taking place? I think that was part of it. He certainly felt a responsibility to the women, and particularly to Katerina, because she ended up being the last nun of that group who did not find a suitor and was still unmarried two years after she had escaped from the convent. So that was absolutely part of it. And I think another part of it was that he felt compelled to live out his theology and and the things that he had been writing about marriage being just as holy uh, as as the monastic life. And so I think he really did feel a little bit of pressure to sort of practice what he had been preaching. Mm. Now, there was opposition to their uh, their being married. What was the opposition, and how did they uh, confront that? Oh, my goodness. There was so much opposition, and it really did continue to dog them for their entire marriage, particularly Katerina. She was viewed just as just a completely scandalous woman, you know, if you think about it, a former nun who, you know, the rumors were that she would have seduced Martin Luther, this great reformer. And so that was scandalous in and of itself. But then, according to the Catholic Church at the time, of course, it was not condoned at all that a nun and a monk would marry. I mean, that was just sinful, scandalous. Uh, bordering, if not altogether heretical. And so, yeah, it created a huge backlash. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a fascinating uh, book, Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. We'll talk about the impact that their marriage had on their theology and their work moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Michelle DeRussia. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about a fascinating book, Katerina uh, and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. Now, life in the 1500s was not easy. What would a day uh, be like for Katerina as the wife of Martin Luther? Well, she typically put in about a 17-hour day. She was Mm. up at about 4 a.m., and Luther used to call her the morning star of Wittenberg because she was literally up when the stars were still out in the sky. They had six children. They also raised several foster children. Uh, Katerina ran the Luther home, which was basically what we would consider a hostel or a hotel today because... They lived in a former monastery, as I said earlier, so they often had up to 50 guests at a time. Uh, she ran the farm. She grew her own vegetables and fruits. She slaughtered the animals for meat. She made medicinals. She brewed her own beer because her beer was Luther's favorite, and so he preferred to drink hers over a different brand, so to speak. And she managed the household finances and multiple properties. So she really had her work cut out for Mm. her. Well, her life as a nun apparently was good training for the life that she would lead with Martin Luther. How did being married shape um, Martin Luther and consequently his theology? Well, I think being married helped Luther live out his theology in a real everyday way. So Living the day-to-day life with another human being made Luther's theology very real and concrete in a way that simply writing about faith and grace and love might not have been able to. And so in marriage, he aspired to love as Jesus loved him. And so in loving Katerina, Luther really came to understand in a hands-on way how self-sacrifice and empathy and compassion and love flowed out of his love for Christ. Hmm. Now, they lost two children, um, Katerina and Martin. How did that impact them as individuals and uh, them as a married couple? Right. Well, it was devastating, as you can probably imagine. Uh, they, They lost an infant daughter, and then later, uh, their 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena, and that was just a particularly tragic loss because uh, she suffered, and it was, of course, excruciating to witness that suffering. And so, you know, I think that that kind of trauma and tragedy can either drive a couple apart mm-hmm. in marriage or really bring them together, and, and it seems like it did absolutely the latter for Martin and Katerina Luther. You can see in Luther's letters to Katerina, and he traveled a lot, so he wrote her a lot of letters, and you can see in the aftermath as they were walking through this grief together how much he worried about her and cared for her and and really wanted to help her recover from the loss to the best of his ability. But it really, it, it shook Luther's faith. It really did. He's very um, very forthright in some of his letters to Katerina and also to his friends about how particularly the death of Magdalena rocked him right to the core. Mm, as I'm sure most parents would say who've lost a child. Mm-hmm. Do we know a lot about the uh, the other of their children and if they left a mark on the church? A little bit, not not much, and I didn't concentrate a whole lot on the children. Um, both Katerina and Martin Luther died fairly young, although not terribly young for that time, but by our standards. 
Um, they were young. And so they're living children. Uh, one did become a pastor and one became a doctor. And they also had uh, a couple daughters who, who married. So they were successful. Now, um, there isn't a whole lot written about Katerina, um, certainly not as much as there is about Martin Luther. How did you research her life for, for this book and their relationship? Yeah, that was really challenging. So unfortunately, only eight of Katerina's letters survive and were preserved, which is a real shame because we don't get to hear about what it was like to be married to Martin Luther in her own words. So it was hard from that respect to really get an idea of what her life was like. But I did do a lot of research and looked into what um, life was like for some of her contemporaries at the time. So say when I was writing about life in the cloistered convent, I would read writings and letters by abbesses and just trying to get a handle on what Katerina's life might have been like, and then tried to overlay some of the facts that I did know um, about Katerina to create a fuller picture of what her life might have been like. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, I really, there's there's definitely some gaps that still still remain there and probably always will, because we don't have her story in her own words. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the most surprising things you learned about this couple? I was really surprised to see how lighthearted and tender and actually fun their marriage and their relationship seemed to be. So I sort of, you know, I'm I'm Lutheran, and so I grew up and learned about Luther as sort of this, you know, man, this, uh, put him on a pedestal, this famous man in the, in the Christian and, and Lutheran church especially. And so I was surprised to see that he was, he had a real sweet side. And and the fun side, and his letters to her convey a lightness to their to their marriage. They kind of teased each other good-naturedly. They bantered back and forth. Some of the uh, notes that his students took when they sat around their dining table uh, conveys this lightheartedness that Katerina and Martin Luther shared in their marriage. So we do get a little bit of a peek into Katerina's personality from the observances of some of Luther's students who were basically writing down every word that that he was (laughs) uttering. I know they were just basically sitting at his feet, listening and, and recording every one of his words. So I was surprised by that. Just tender, sweet, and and fun. Well, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and this is an excellent way to uh, to consider some of the issues around uh, the the Reformation from a different vantage point. Again, the book is titled Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and Renegade Monk. The book is published by Baker. And I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk with us. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, Michelle DeRussia is the author. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. In the next hour, we're going to talk with Peter Brooks about what, what's happening with um, North Korea and what might happen next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is our time. And portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res.
Later this hour, we'll talk with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in national security affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about what's next with North Korea. Are we uh, still at the brink? Should the United States continue to project strength in the region and defend our allies and our interests, even if it means increasing tension and risk of greater conflict? We'll talk with him about all of that later this hour. Well, President Trump today uh, used the executive order once again to push his higher American platform. It doesn't actually change anything, but it does at least signal his priorities. The president signed the executive order this uh, this morning to begin overhauling the country's guest worker programs and federal procurement rules. As administration officials said that uh, he hopes to make strides on his push to buy and hire American. Well, the president still won't cancel the H-1B visa program he complained about during the presidential campaign, but he's calling on federal agencies to look at lesser steps designed to reduce abuses that could let companies hire foreigners even when qualified Americans are waiting. The president also uh, ordered a government-wide review of contracting laws. He's going to reduce or eliminate the issuance of waivers that allow federal agencies to skirt existing by American laws. The culture immediately changes across the agencies. A senior administration official said yesterday, briefing reporters ahead of the president's announcement today. He uh, signed the executive order at an event at the headquarters of the Snap-on Tools in Kenosha, Wisconsin. As a candidate, uh, Mr. Trump made big promises about pressuring government and businesses to look to the U.S. first in both hiring and procurement. Well, uh, Mr. Trump repeated the Buy American, Hire American mantra in his speech at his inauguration and in his first address to the joint session of Congress. He said, my administration will follow two simple rules, Buy American and Hire American, he told the joint session last month. He had some successes, including enticing companies to keep plants in the U.S. rather than ship production to other countries. And in uh, fairness, some of those decisions had been made prior to his administration. But he's uh, missed a, an important deadline to crack down on the H-1B visa program, which he blasted as a way for major U.S. companies to hire cheaper foreign workers, sometimes even forcing Americans to train their foreign replacements. Well, the latest round of H-1B visas was completed on Monday, with the agency announcing it had completed the lottery to dole out permits for 2018. Nearly 200,000 applications were submitted for just 85,000 jobs. Well, the number of applications actually decreased this year compared to previous two go-rounds when more than 230,000 applications were submitted each year. Companies and colleges that rely on foreign workers said the U.S. is too restrictive, losing out on high-quality foreign talent in a global market. But advocates for U.S. workers say the president uh, promised big changes and said they've, uh, they're disappointed he hasn't followed through. Administration officials described the president's new plans uh, on Monday, said they're asking for more ideas, but some of those they uh, they're already looking at are boosting the fee for hiring a guest worker, instituting more vigorous enforcement to combat fraud, and adjusting the lottery to give preference to foreign workers with master's degrees, more highly qualified workers. Currently, just 20,000 of the 85,000 H-1B visas are set aside for those with master's degrees. Well, the president's wife, Melania, worked in the U.S. on an H-1B visa in the 1990s as a fashion model. She didn't complete her college degree, much less a master's degree, but eventually earned her green card, granting permanent legal status as a model of extraordinary ability. 
That's one way of putting it. Extraordinary ability. Uh, Then the senior administration official who briefed reporters said the president's executive order was just the beginning of his efforts. This is a transitional step to get a more merit based immigration system. The official said when you're telling the agencies to suggest reforms, you're creating an entirely new structure. And this announcement apparently today was the beginning of that entirely new structure. Meanwhile, the Buy American provisions will include an assessment of the uh, judicious uh, use of waivers and executions uh, that allow use of foreign-made materials, trade deals that exempt foreign countries uh, from Buy American laws, and measures that specifically deal with foreign-made steel. Hmm, Extraordinary. That's kind of an interesting way of uh, extraordinary ability. Clark, do you think that you know, uh, Melania Trump was allowed into the country because she was a model. She's what, probably five eight, five ten, six feet. I'm about five two. She probably weighs a hundred pounds. I weigh something, hundred something. Do you think I have extraordinary ability and I could have competed in this case? Yeah, he's got that look on his face. Like if I were to say anything, it it just wouldn't work out. So, anyway, she certainly does have extraordinary abilities in that area that I lack. Anyway, the battle for a House seat in Georgia's 6th District, you might be thinking, 6th District in Georgia, who cares? Well, this is a big deal because uh, it is the only the second opportunity um, since the presidential election that Democrats see an opportunity to make uh, a point to send a message. Now, there have been five opportunities to unseat Republicans, none of which were successful up to this point. The most recent was just last week. But this battle for a House seat in Georgia has sparked tremendous attention and uh, effort on the part of the Democrats to send a message not only to uh, Donald Trump, but to Republicans in general. It's uh, uh, with a primary election on Tuesday. It's uh, becoming quasi-referendum on the president. Uh, that will probably intensify over the next couple of months. Now, I say that because the threshold is 50 percent. If the Democrat candidate, the 30-year-old uh, filmmaker, uh, is uh, unsuccessful at reaching 50 percent of the vote, then he's going to have to have a runoff in this predominantly Republican area where you have, what, 12 other candidates running on the Republican side. And uh, virtually everyone says, well, under that circumstance, it's most likely going to end up Republican. But this is an important runoff for the Democrats, and they've um, they've invested a lot in this race. They're rallying behind the 30-year-old political neophyte, John Ossoff, who is uh, buoyed by $8.3 million in donations from small Democratic donors from around the country. They're eager to make a statement about their feelings about the new president. If Ossoff captures 50 percent of the vote today, the so-called uh, jungle primary, which features 18 candidates, including four major GOP contenders, he'll avoid a June runoff against a single Republican competitor. Now, polling averages show him uh, uh, falling at least a few points short of that goal, and the most likely outcome is that the battle drags on. If Ossoff uh, does hit 50 percent, it would be a further inclination or indication rather that House Republicans uh, begin the cycle in deep trouble in upscale districts. That's a quote from David Wasserman, House editor at the nonpartisan Cook Political Report uh, in a weekend uh, analysis of the race, which would otherwise not be on anybody's radar. People will say this is sending a signal about the new administration, says another observer. However, if he doesn't win on Tuesday and loses in June after all the hype, it will be difficult for Democrats to argue uh, that they are on their way to taking back the House. Well, the most likely outcome in this race, as it narrows uh, to a two-person battle uh, on the 20th of June, making it more challenging for Democrats to win as Republicans rally behind 
a single candidate. The national spotlight is also beginning to activate Republicans. This is a lot of national attention being given to a local race, but the district itself is still a conservative Republican district. Well, that Democrats are even in striking distance paints a portrait of a post-election landscape in which Democrats are energized to oppose Trump. Republicans have held a seat for 37 years with previous occupants, including former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Well, changing demographics and Trump's unpopularity led to a Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton losing the district by just one point in November. That's emboldened Democrats this time around. And that compares to the double-digit margin the district gave Romney four years earlier. And while Ossoff is drawing significant attention from national Democrats, uh, celebrities and Hollywood types, He's uh, centered his campaign message on economics versus wholesale Trump opposition, including highlighting plans for high-tech sector jobs in Atlanta and rooting out Washington waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, Ossoff uh, has raised an eye-popping amount of money outstripping contributions to all 11 of his Republican rivals combined. Democrats from all over the country are also motivated in sending a message about this race because the seat's previous occupant is Trump's Health and Human Service Secretary, Tom Price. That's why there's a runoff. He's guiding the rewrite of the replacement plan for Obamacare. So that's uh, that's uh, one of the reasons there's so much interest in this race. And they point to recent polling saying Ossoff is capable of winning a two-person race. A new poll for Atlanta's Fox 5 has him two points ahead of uh, Karen Handel, the former Georgia Secretary of State, who is one of the likely contenders to be in the face-off that is to come. So uh, you'll probably be hearing some some news about the Georgia race, although the numbers uh, will most likely not be firm until tomorrow morning. But this is why it's a big deal. No one should conclude that it's a done deal and the Republican will win if Ossoff falls short of the 50% uh, today. Uh, That is the most likely outcome, but... um, uh, it's it's going to be a real race uh, up till June the 20th. There will be uh, more national money poured into the race. We're going to have another two months of this, as one uh, Georgia insider anticipating the outcome of today's contest. By the way, there was uh, a theft of some voting machines in Georgia that's calling into question whether or not there's fraud involved. So there's a whole nother element to this whole thing. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Peter Brooks will join us later this hour to talk about uh, North Korea and what's likely to happen next. I mentioned in Georgia they're having this uh, this run on this uh, runoff this special election well key electronic voting logs used in the Georgia special election to fill a vacant congressional seat were swiped from the pickup truck of a poll worker during a grocery run according to police uh, in the area, well, the theft of early voting check-in books has raised the specter of fraud in the hotly contested race to fill the state's sixth district seat left open when Tom Price was named Health and Human Services Secretary. Uh, the theft could just be a random thing, but the timing makes it much more worrisome, uh, says the Cobb County GOP. Well, the books that were stolen on the 15th of April, the day after early voting ended in Cobb County, were so-called e-poll books used by elect. Um, elections officials to check in voters at the polls. The books, which resemble computer tablets, store information, um, voters, maps, polling site reports, and and so on. Uh, They have signature pads that enable poll workers to compare new signatures uh, with those on record. Well, the Cobb County Police Department, which is heading the investigation, provided the police uh, report 
In response to the Georgia Open Records request, the poll manager uh, says, uh, told police rather that he parked his Ford F-250 Super Duty near the front of a Kroger supermarket store and may have failed to lock the car along with other um, valuables that were left in the vehicle. And that was all stolen. Sometimes I just wonder at people who do the people's business and have equipment that belongs to the people and are very careless about where it's uh, where it's left. Anyway, that's uh, another element uh, that will very likely be taken into account depending on the outcome of this uh, race today. Well, according to Planned Parenthood's press release, the gala uh, honoring Hillary Clinton for her 40 years of service to women and girls in this country uh, is going to be taking place soon. These are women and girls who escaped the um, the poisoning of saline that uh, that is used in an abortion or some of the other methods. At the same time, the group will present its Champion of Change Award to producer Shonda Rhimes for revolutionizing the way women and issues of reproductive health, including safe legal abortion, are portrayed on television. And of course, they're referring to the episode in which an abortion was taking place on the main character and Silent Night was playing uh, in the background. And she had these very uh, loving expressions on her face while her child was being extracted from her. Well, Planned Parenthood announced last week that it will honor the former Democratic presidential nominee with a group's first ever Champion of the Century Award. The organization will host a number of events this year to commemorate the centennial year of its founding in October of 1916. Among those events will be the gala, 100 Years Strong, the Celebration of a Century, held in May in New York. According to Planned Parenthood's press release, the gala will honor Clinton for her 40 years of service to women and girls, at least those who survived abortion. At the same event, the group will present its Champion of Change Award to the producer. Well, this refers, of course, to Rhymes' uh, work uh, as the creator and producer of the television show Scandal, which in 2015 featured the scene I described showing the main character undergoing an on-screen abortion while the Christmas song Silent Night played in the background. The abortion itself was not pictured graphically. The camera focused on the character's face as the procedure Occurred. Well, these two awards are merely the latest proof, as uh, National Review's Alexandra DeSanctis put it, uh, the latest example of um, uh, that Planned Parenthood is not, in fact, an innocent defender of women's rights, nor is it pro-choice organization that exists to give American women an array of health care options. Planned Parenthood is an abortion corporation that seeks every possible opportunity to glorify abortion and deify the public figures who push for total access to government-funded abortion on demand. Clinton, who has already received Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger Award, named after the group's uh, eugenicist founder, um, had done little to, to uh, of note throughout her long and unsuccessful po- uh, political career to serve American women and children, but she has always been a prominent and staunch supporter of abortion. And the love goes both ways. Planned Parenthood President Cecil uh, Richards stumped for Clinton's campaign across the country in 2016, and her organization's political action arm donated $38 million to Democratic candidates at all levels in the last election cycle. In return for this uh, support, Clinton, as the Democratic nominee, oversaw the horrifying decision to alter her party's platform, adopting the most pro-abortion policy stance the party has ever taken. The revised Democratic platform endorses the full repeal of the Hyde Amendment, which bans the direct taxpayer funding of abortion, and calls for the repeal of all federal and state policies that impede abortion in any way, including abortions through the last weeks of pregnancy. In fact, in the final debate of the presidential election, Clinton categorically defended late-term abortion, using a disingenuous definition, women's health, 
to justify partial birth procedures. Now, neither Planned Parenthood nor its uh, uh, champion of the century is uh, committed to protecting or serving women and girls. Though the group uh, claims to offer women an array of health care choices, it has grossly exaggerated its commitment to providing prenatal care, which in fact is almost entirely unavailable at its clinics. Planned Parenthood continues to assert that abortion is a mere 3% of its services, even though that inaccurate statistic has been debunked numerous times, including by left-leaning outlets such as Slate and The Washington Post. Now, the company's leadership has routinely and falsely claimed that its clinics offer mammograms, though they never have done so. The group provides less than 1% of, its, um, na- of the nation's pap tests and less than 2% of its breast exams and cancer screening while performing 325,000 abortions annually, about one-third of the abortions performed in the U.S. every year. Planned Parenthood clinics are outnumbered across the country by uh, federal, uh, federally qualified health care clinics by a ratio of 20 to 1. And these alternative clinics actually provide women an extensive array of health care options. 20 to 1. Planned Parenthood provides less than 1% of the nation's pap tests, less than 2% of its breast exams and cancer screenings, while performing 325,000 abortions annually. 20 to 1. There are 20 organizations for every Planned Parenthood that provides all of that, an array of health care options for women. Now, Planned Parenthood was recently uh, the subject of a 15-month congressional investigation, which uncovered extensive evidence that the group has been involved in the illegal trafficking of body parts of aborted babies, for which the group apparently received monetary compensation. And by the way, the mothers of those uh, babies' uh, body parts were never informed. It's been referred by Congress to both federal and local law enforcement agencies for further investigation. Meanwhile, as Planned Parenthood takes the time to plan its fancy gala and hand out unmerited awards, it is yet to produce an annual financial report for the 2015-2016 fiscal year. This while the group continues to accept half a billion dollars of taxpayer money, the tax money that you and I are responsible for giving account for earlier or later today from the federal government every year. What's more, several reports indicate that some of the group's affiliates have engaged in possible Medicaid fraud to cover up use of this public funding to directly facilitate abortion procedures. There's no doubt that Clinton richly deserves this award as she was has long been a public champion for Planned Parenthood, sanctioning the murder of thousands of children and forcing unwilling Americans to pay for it. But as information continues to surface about the abortion group's illegal activity, public deceptions, it becomes increasingly evident that neither Clinton nor Planned Parenthood is a true champion of women and children or at least not all women and children. One can only hope that in the fullness of time, Planned Parenthood's disgracefully propped up fortunes take the same disastrous turn as did Hillary Clinton's presidential ambitions. It's a sad day when you celebrate the, um, the killing of children with such um, impunity. Well, finally, in a shock announcement, Prime Minister Theresa May on Tuesday called for an early general election to be held on the 8th of June to seek a strong mandate as she negotiates Britain's exit from the European Union. Now, this came as something of a shock. Standing outside 10 Downing Street, she said she would ask the House of Commons on Wednesday to back her call for an election three years before the next scheduled date. In May of 2020, she said that since Britons voted to leave the EU in June, the country had come together, but politicians had not. She said the political divisions risk our ability to make a success of Brexit. 
At present, May's government conservatives have 350 seats in the 650-seat House of Commons. She said that our opponents believe that because the government's majority is so small, our resolve will weaken and that uh, they can force us to change course on leaving the EU. They are wrong, she said. They underestimate our determination to get the job done, and I, done rather, and I am not prepared uh, to let them endanger the security of millions of working people across the country. So she has called for... Um, a special election, early election, rather, on June the 8th, uh, hoping to um, have something of a mandate before moving forward. Uh, and a pair of uh, Russian nuclear-capable bombers flew near Alaska on Monday night, two U.S. officials uh, have said, coming as close as 100 miles from Kodiak Island, the first time since President Trump took office that Moscow has sent bombers so close to the U.S., well, the two Russian 295 Bear bombers flew roughly 280 miles southwest of um, Elmendorf Air Force Base within the Air Defense Identification Zone of the United States. The U.S. Air Force scrambled two F-22 stealth fighter jets and an E-3 airborne early warning plane to intercept the Russian bomber. The American jets flew alongside the Russian bomber for about 12 minutes before the bombers from Russia reversed course and headed back to their base in eastern Russia. Um, Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin called then-President Barack Obama to wish him a happy Independence Day while the bombers cruised the California coastline. That was back in 2015, the last time Russian bombers flew near the U.S. This is the latest test from Russia for the new administration. Up next, we'll talk with Peter Brooks, a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We'll talk about what's, uh, what's happening with North Korea, what's likely to happen next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, both the Trump administration and North Korea are ratcheting up statements about a potential conflict. Of course, North Korea is test firing missiles and has uh, suggested they're going to accelerate that effort in view of some of the statements made by the Trump administration. Here to try to uh, help us understand what uh, what's likely to be next with North Korea is Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation and fear surrounding uh, events uh, in, in uh, North Korea and uh, between the United States. What are your thoughts generally about statements that the Trump administration has made and actions that the North Koreans have taken? Well, there's been a lot of heated, overheated rhetoric, obviously, but this is a very serious issue. Yes. Um, the, North Korea is an increasing threat to the United States, but also it's a very complex uh, military matter. Uh, the United a war on the Korean Peninsula, uh, unfortunately, uh, would... Uh, have a increased level of violence over what we've seen in our wars the last 15 years. North Korea has a million-man army. Uh, it has 100,000 special operations forces. It has a limited nuclear arsenal. It has chemical weapons. We just saw the uh, the death of the uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea's brother, using VX gas, and mm-hmm. people seem to think that was North Korea behind that. Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is a, a mere 25 miles from the demilitarized zone, which is a, a total misnomer. It's not demilitarized at all. It's the most militarized mm-hmm. line of division in the world in the world today. So it's a very serious uh, military uh, situation on the Korean Peninsula. The South Korean army is also 
uh, very large and very, very capable. And the level of violence uh, would be, you know, incredible, not something that we would certainly want to see. So this is a very serious uh, situation that we're facing. That said, I don't think that we're on the brink of war. Uh, I think that, though, there's, like I said, it's been some strong rhetoric on both sides. Uh, President Trump has said that he's expecting the Chinese to try to intervene to deal with North Korea and its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. I probably let that, certainly let that play out. Vice President Pence and his visit to South Korea, he's in Japan now, has talked about the use of political and, and economic uh, sanctions. There are still things to sanction on North Korea, especially international banking. So, I think that uh, things got pretty tense there. I think North Korea and Georgina, in a sense, blinked because it did not uh, have another nuclear test. Its missile test failed. Uh, and so I think they may have stepped back. We all may have stepped back from the brink for a moment. Well, one one would certainly uh, hope. I appreciate your mentioning their conventional weapons, even without the use of nuclear weapons, without them being fully developed, which, of course, is their intention. Their conventional weapons are enough to cause us great concern. Now, I'm hearing comparisons to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, we don't have the same proximity. We don't. You know, there are lots of differences. But your thoughts as to um, whether or not there are any parallels? Yeah, I'm not so sure I would grasp that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, history is the only thing we can kind of base uh, some analogies on for people to understand. Uh, but it's, it's rather inexact. And I understand why people may try to, to, to talk about this, but it's different. It's a different countries. It's a different time. Uh, we have some capabilities uh, to defend against North Korean missiles. Uh, we have an array of missile defenses. Uh, I think we need more of those. But we have an array of missile defenses. North Korea, I don't believe, can reach the United States right now with the intercontinental ballistic missile. Or if it could, it would be very risky. It would be unguided. And certainly people on the West Coast are at greater risk than myself here in Washington, D.C. But that said, uh, you know, there are 25,000 or 28,000 brave Americans uh, serving in South Korea, 100,000 expatriates or Korean Americans that live in Korea. Japan, we have 50,000 is sailors, airmen, Marines, and soldiers, uh, and Japan and South Korea are allies of, of ours. Uh, Guam, at some point out in the, in the Pacific there, uh, may come under threat from North Korea as well as Hawaii and, and Alaska. So this is, this is very serious, but I don't think we're in a crisis. I think that's where I would perhaps, uh, you know, I think we've stepped back from the, from the brink. Um, and I think that President Trump has said that his conversations with President Xi of China, that he's looking for China to make to make a difference. Then we may have to see what what is done. But there's a lot that below the use of military force that could be done to make things more painful for, uh, for North Korea. In fact, Georgine, in the 19 uh, during the Bush George W. Bush administration. Uh, they went after North Korea's international banking, and uh, they got the North Koreans to come to the negotiating table. Now, th- that failed, and I think it's difficult to get anybody for, to get North Korea to denuclearize because that's what makes them a major power. And I, I think they'd be very reluctant to give, to give that up. So I, I think that there's, there's lots of options out there, and I think that's what the White House is saying. All options are on the table, but that includes everything from the diplomatic to the economic uh, to the uh, to military. Now, President Trump has said that he's keeping very close to the 
uh, the chest what uh, specifically the United States might do. And that seems to me to be wisdom rather than announcing so that uh, the enemy can uh, can prepare. But while in South Korea, the vice president said that the era of strategic patience is over. What might that mean in view of the current conflict? Well, the the fact is, is that this was the the, the bumper sticker. Uh, for North Korea policy during the Obama administration uh, called Strategic Patience, which they, I think was uh, basically a cover for not doing much of anything. Um, and uh, they didn't do much of anything. And uh, unfortunately, I think there was an acceleration of both North Korea's nuclear and their ballistic missile programs. We had um, three or four tests, as I recall, nuclear tests during the Obama administration, and last year, the last year of the Obama administration, there were more ballistic missile tests than I think in the previous 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that sort of benign neglect or strategic patience or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, allowed North Korea to move forward. There should have perhaps been a tightening of sanctions, uh, put more pain on North Korea to change and dissuade it from its, from its actions. Uh, but I think that, you know, I think that what the vice president was saying is that we're going to look at the tools in our toolkit and see what we can do because we are clearly, and our allies are clearly in the crosshairs of the North Korean ballistic missile and nuclear program. Uh, Fred Flights, who's a senior vice president for the Center for Security Policy, points out that North Korea will eventually have missiles pointed at U.S. bases in Japan and elsewhere. Uh, North Korean nuclear weapons have two purposes, deterrence and extortion. We've bought them off for years. Uh, then they break their commitments. We buy them off again for a little while while their technology gets more and more advanced. The cycle can't continue. Um, you mentioned uh, that China has has stepped in, as they have in, previously, but they tend to be aggressive maybe for a month or two, and then they step away. Um, the, the meeting that the president had with uh, President Xi um, holds some promise, but what do, you, what do you expect is likely to happen given this current set of circumstances that might compel the Chinese to put more pressure on North Korea while managing their own interests, which means they don't want a major conflict on their uh, border or an economic collapse of North Korea either? I think you've covered it all right there, Georgine. That's, that's the situation. Our interests uh, and China's interests on the Korean Peninsula don't align exactly. Uh, sure, we could talk about big things like peace and stability, but uh, more specifically, they don't. And you pointed out a couple of things. Uh, the Chinese and the, and the North Koreans have been allies for many years. Now, North Korea is very troublesome to China because of the instability that it's it's causing, um, and the independence uh, that it's showing uh, from China, and um, I think that causes the Chinese a lot of consternation. Yet um, they are allies for many years, and they, they China was the deciding difference in the Korean War, um, and the Chinese are concerned about a unified Korea that might be pro-U.S. They're worried about U.S. forces, that there's a collapse in the north, being north of the 38th parallel. Remember, during the Korean War, they sent 200,000, quote-unquote, volunteers over after MacArthur landed in Incheon and moved U.S. forces north towards the Yellow River. Um, this is, you know, the Chinese are, are concerned. The United States is a major competitor of the United States. Uh, and so they, uh, they, they are, have different interests on the Korean Peninsula than we have. And you can't just expect that they will surrender those interests. You'd like to see them do it, but you have to understand that they probably won't. 
So there, there's possibilities. But, you know, the president of China, President Xi, and president of uh, North Korea, or the leader of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, have never even met. Mm. Uh, China doesn't have the influence there that they had in the past. In fact, the, more, the most senior the interlocutor uh, with China and Pyong- between Beijing and Pyongyang for many years uh, reportedly was, um, was executed by Kim Jong-un. So the uh, the Chinese would like to have more. They have more influence than any other country be, because of history, because of being a major benefactor of food and fuel. But they don't have complete influence yeah. in North Korea, in my estimation. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow uh, what's happening there. I appreciate so much your adding your insight so that we can better understand uh, what's happening. Peter Brooks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Again, Peter Brooks is a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. This is the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Brandon Clements. He's the co-author of The Simplest Way to Change the World. And it really has has to do with hospitality and how we... Uh, how we interpret the scriptures call for us to be hospitable. It's it's kind of an interesting concept we'll talk about uh, tomorrow. A couple of stories I wanted to bring you up to date on. There, this one is developing. It comes out of Fresno. Three people were killed earlier today. A man apparently went on a shooting spree in downtown Fresno, California. He shouted um, Aloha Akbar, which is the Arabic God is great, before he... Uh, was tackled and taken into custody, according to police. Again, this is in Fresno. The police chief there said that officers took um, Corey Ali Muhammad, 39, into custody in connection to the uh, the shootings. He said that he uh, went by the nickname Black Jesus. So I'm not sure how he reconciles those two things, but he shouted the Arabic uh, phrase as police tackled him to the ground. Uh, the police chief said at the news conference that the uh, suspect told police that he hates white people, has made posts against white people in the government on his Facebook page. All of the victims of the shooting rampage were white men, according to police. And the shooting spree that began around 1045 a.m. local time went, uh, when one person was shot at a PG&E utility truck, a second person shot on Fulton Street, and a third person shot in a parking lot of a Catholic charities uh, building. All three shooting locations were uh, close to each other in the downtown area. Around 16 shots were fired during the shooting spree. We don't know if more people were targeted. What we know is that this was a random act of violence, according <clears throat> excuse me, to the police chief there. There's every reason to believe he acted alone. Um, he's already wanted in connection to the killing of an unarmed security guard at a Motel 6 last week, according to police. He now faces four counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, according to the court records. Um, uh, again, four dead. Uh, the police chief said Fresno police have called the FBI to assist in that investigation. Uh, and the agency's not treating the shooting as an incident of terror, but is sending agents to the scene at the request of local police. The mayor there said it was a sad day for the community, um, and said that his thoughts and the community's thoughts and prayers are with the families of the victims. None of us can imagine what they must have gone through. I am grateful for the quick and decisive response of our police department. We also learned that the so-called Facebook killer who shot an unarmed 74-year-old man in the face posted, uploaded the images of that uh, event on Facebook um, and uh, was a fugitive for at least 24, 48 hours. He was shot and killed earlier today. We are living in a very violent time, and 
uh, in view of the celebration we had this past weekend in which we consider the weight of the whole world being carried by Jesus, the violent death that he suffered on our behalf, uh, which reflects, to me, it reflects the, the desperate condition that our world is in. We need to be praying men and women. We need to be people who are uh, quick to share our testimony, to share the love of Christ, because we're living in a very desperate time in our culture. Now, it's not to suggest that we have not always lived at a time when, um, you know, the flesh has expressed itself in, in ways that are violent. But in this country, it's it's tragic to see these kinds of events unfolding. Uh, in one case, it was uh, rooted in hatred, uh, racial hatred. In another case, it was uh, frustration. And uh, the individual who was responsible for shooting the 74-year-old man in the face was frustrated because his girlfriend had left him. He apparently had uh, debts. His mother described him as a sweet Christian man who had just gone off kilter. I, I don't know the whole story. That's what his mother said. Uh, but these are, are serious times, and I hope we are facing them with a, a sobriety that is fitting those who uh, are followers of Christ and know how important it is for us to share our testimony, to share our faith, to extend the love of Christ, and to be praying for our country. Um, these are such sad occurrences, but I suppose not altogether surprising. Also, former President George Herbert Walker Bush was hospitalized. It was, as we're told now, as a precaution. He's, of course, has been hospitalized earlier, and this being the most recent, uh, the news which is still uh, developing. He had a mild case of pneumonia, which is why he was hospitalized earlier. The former president is back in the hospital. Uh, according to his spokesperson, he said the 41st president was admitted to Houston Methodist Hospital today, uh, rather on Friday, due to a persistent cough that prevented him from getting proper rest. It was subsequently determined that he had a mild case of pneumonia again, which was was uh, treated and has been resolved. His spokesperson didn't say when Bush would be released from the hospital, noting that the former president was being held for observation while he regains his strength. Of course, he's 92. He was hospitalized um, for approximately two weeks in January, you might recall. He was treated then for pneumonia. At one point, he was placed on a ventilator, treated in intensive care. His uh, wife, 91-year-old Barbara Bush, was also hospitalized uh, around that same time for treatment of bronchitis. The Bushes had recovered enough to take part in the ceremonial coin toss at the Super Bowl 51 in Houston on the 5th of February, and he's back in the hospital, although they say he has uh, responded well to uh, the treatment he received. So keep the Bushes uh, in prayer as well. Uh, later this week on Thursday, we're going to talk with uh, Congressman Ken Buck. I talked a little bit about his book, Drain the Swamp, yesterday, and it just so happened that the guest that we had scheduled had to reschedule, and uh, Congressman Buck is only available this week, so it worked out that we were able to place him on Thursday. Uh, again, his book is titled Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. And in the article I referenced, he um, talked about the fact, for example, that when you are assigned to a committee, and I guess the more prestigious the committee is, the more you have to pay for your role on that committee. So first, I've ever heard of that. I worked in a congressional office. I follow what happens in Washington fairly closely. I had no idea that members of these committees, and I don't know if that's just for the chair or the ranking members, but you pay a significant amount. I think one of the committees he was on, he had to pay $450,000. And I don't recall now, but it was either to the um, the uh, campaign committee of the party that you belong to. Anyway, that was just one of the examples that he, uh, he gave that was a surprise to me, and I'm guessing to 
uh, many other of his readers. But we're going to talk with him about the book, Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Some of it is structural, as he uh, describes, uh, coming in as a naive congressman, uh, believing that he was going to, uh, you know, change things and move quickly and learn very uh, quickly. Instead, that unless you play by the rules that have been established, that's not necessarily in the best interest of the uh, the American people or has anything to do with the interests of the American people, but propping up certain interest groups, uh, then it's very difficult to function there. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And again, that's going to be on Thursday. Uh, the subtitle of the book, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. And then uh, later that same day, on this is Thursday, we're going to talk with Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze, uh, both from African New Life. Now, you know, last week we had our radiothon with African New Life. And during those two hours, our focus is solely on the specific community and the needs of, in this case, the children there who need our help so that they can be fed on a regular basis. And there's so much connected to being properly nourished. Well, during the breaks, we were talking about a lot of the other things that Africa New Life is doing. You know, their headquarters is here in the Portland area. And I invited Alan and he suggested Lillian Uwaze to join him to come in and just talk uh, talk more about some of the projects that Africa New Life is involved in. The uh, community that we focused on during the Radiothon is a relatively new project, but they are doing some amazing things. And when I think about the uh, the founder uh, who was attending seminary here in Portland uh, when the organization began, he took in some 30 kids and sponsored them himself. And he imagined that, you know, he would try to help them to prosper following events that devastated Rwanda. Well, it has grown so dramatically that I, I'm just amazed. I've uh, been to Rwanda a couple of times. I uh, The first trip that I made connected with Africa New Life was very impressed with the work they were doing then. But to reflect on what they're doing now is going to be the subject of our conversation on Thursday in the second hour of the program. Again, Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze will join us from Africa New Life and looking forward to that. And then on Friday, assuming there isn't some catastrophic event, which, of course, is a possibility, uh, we're going to uh, lighten things up and we'll look forward to forward to that. So that's the lineup for the remainder of this week and hope you uh, plan to join us. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.